We're actually not going to have a specific scripture reading this evening because, as I told you last week, we're kind of going to do a, a, a book of Philippians at 20,000 feet, right? We're going to do the overview of Philippians, and so really our text is is the entire book of, book of Philippians, a lot of which I'm going to read without uh, throughout the, the sermon. So um, let's just go to prayer. Um, I'm going to use part of my, as part of my um, Thanksgiving prayer today, um, a, a prayer that we find in the, the little book, The Valley of Vision, that I recommend to you guys often. There are several just beautiful prayers of Thanksgiving, and so I thought they'd be appropriate today. So I'm going to use this as, as a, a part of our prayer, and then I'll, I'll close this asking God to, to bless um, the reading and teaching of his word. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Thou great and only King, thou hast made summer and winter, day and night. Each of these revolutions serves our welfare and is full of thy care and kindness. Thy bounty is seen in the relations that train us, the laws that defend us, the homes that shelter us, the food that builds us up, the raiment that comforts us, the continuance of our health, our limbs, our senses, our understanding, our memory, our affection, our will. But as stars fade before the rising sun, thou hast eclipsed all these benefits in the wisdom and grace that purposed redemption by Jesus thy son. Blessed be thy mercy that laid help on one that is mighty and willing, one that is able to save to the uttermost. Make us deeply sensible of our need of his saving grace, of the blood that cleanses, of the rest he has promised. And impute to us that righteousness which justifies the guilty, gives them a title to eternal life and possession of the spirit. May we love the freeness of salvation and joy in its holiness. Give us faith to grasp thy promises that are our hope. Provide for every exigency and prevent every evil. Keep our hearts from straying after forbidden pleasures. May thy will bind all our wishes. Let us live out of the world as to its spirit, maxims, manners, but live in it as the sphere of our action and usefulness. May we be alive to every call of duty accepting without question thy determination of our circumstances and our service. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that as we open it, God, that you use your word through the person of the Holy Spirit to form us, to shape us, to conform our lives to the image of Jesus Christ. And we ask that you would do that today um, as we as we spend one last message in Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. God, use your word to bless us and form us into the people that you would call us to be. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So you know that my preferred uh, style of preaching is, um, and, the, and the one that I think is most beneficial is is verse by verse expositional preaching, right? Um, I think that should be the meat and potatoes of of any preaching ministry. 
Um, but that is not to say that it doesn't potentially have some drawbacks. And one of those that, that you have to mitigate against and think about all the time as you're preaching expositionally is that sense that you can sometimes miss the forest for the trees. That you can zoom in so tight on a certain passage and learn such individualized truth in that passage. Um, learn a bunch of uh, commands and doctrines and individual principles and things that God is trying to show us in one little passage that you end up missing the larger context of those within the book itself and really the broader picture of what all those things are pointing to. Um, which in a sense, if you think about it, makes even some expositional sermons into topical sermons in a way, right? They end up just being um, microcosms. Even though you're working through a passage, they end up um, sort of being plucked out of their context. And so I think it might be helpful for us as we finish out the book of Philippians to zoom back out to get a bird's eye view um, of the book and kind of see the big picture. Um, and obviously different people might come to the book of Philippians and see it in a different light or whatever. They might zoom in on certain things and feel like the larger themes were different, but, but I'm going to take a certain tack and, um, give you a thesis statement for the book of Philippians. And so you're probably already getting your hearts thinking back to high school and going, man, I hate thesis statements, right? I hate, I don't know how to come up with a thesis statement. I spent weeks doing that in, in public speaking classes and things like that. But if I had to summarize the message of the book of Philippians in one sentence, I would say it is this. Be unified by following Jesus' example of sacrificial trust and humble obedience. That is the big picture of, of the book of Philippians. Probably as I say that sentence, you'll hear some things that you go, yeah, yeah. As we've been in, in Philippians for the past 16 weeks or so, um, certainly we touched on some of those things, but there were probably some other weeks where we zoomed in so close on things that they don't seem like they play into it specifically. Um, but I want to kind of zoom out and, and, and break that sentence down about being unified by following Jesus' example of sacrificial trust and humble obedience, okay? Um, so I'm going to read big sections of the book tonight. I'm sort of cheating on my sermon because a, a large part of the content is just me reading large sections of the scripture. But what I want you to do for, as I'm doing that, is is try to to step out and remember that this is not just Paul's word to the church at Philippi, right? It's not even just the Holy Spirit's word to the church at Philippi, that this is God's word to us. That as he exhorts and as he commands, the Holy Spirit is talking to us, not just to a church that existed 2,000 years ago, okay? So we come to um, the, the central passage, I think, in the entire book, okay? Um, and that is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. I think that is the center of the book, and it is out of that section that everything else kind of plays. And so here's what it says, verse 5, chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, 
Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, that's the center of the book of Philippians. Everything else is sort of radiating out from it. It it talks about at the very beginning this idea of have this mind among yourselves. Okay, follow this example. And then it gives us this picture of Jesus. Now, here's something to notice about the book of Philippians. And I kind of went back and was thinking about this message. And it's something that, to be honest, I hadn't noticed as we went through it verse by verse. But it's something I kind of noticed when we zoomed out. Um, and that is this. There is very little reference in the book of Philippians to the cross. Just kind of an interesting insight. There's very little reference directly to the cross. The most uh, explicit reference is right there in verse 8 where it says that he was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Most of the other references are sort of in passing or talking about them as, you know, they'll say something like there are those who are enemies of the cross, not really dealing with the cross itself, but talking about it in a certain context, right? Um, but that's the main one right there in verse 8. You don't see the cross talked about uh, a lot in the book of Philippians. Um, even here in verse 8, it's kind of cool. The context of the cross is not what we often see in the New Testament. So oftentimes in the New Testament, when it talks about the cross, it's talking about what the cross has accomplished. That in the atoning sacrifice that Jesus has made on the cross, imaging the Old Testament sacrifices, he has become our propitiation. That is, he has become the thing, the person, the sacrifice that absorbs the wrath of God. And he has purchased for us with his blood, our redemption. He has bought us back from sin and paid the price for that with his own blood. That's what you see when the cross is talked about in most places in the New Testament, okay? And, but here... In this passage, that's not the emphasis. The emphasis in verse 8 is it is depicting the cross as the ultimate expression of Jesus' humility and, and sacrificial love. Okay? It is the ultimate expression of him emptying himself, of humbling himself. Now, again, don't hear me wrong. That idea is not in contradiction to all those other things. We are not in any way denying the atoning um, emphasis that we find in most books of the New Testament. All I'm saying is that in this book, he's focusing on a different angle of the cross. He's not focusing on what it did exactly. He's focusing on how it is an example of Jesus' sacrificial, humble obedience before God. So why is that? Well, here's what I think is the case. I think Paul's letter to the Philippians is, for lack of a better way of saying it, a sanctification letter. It's not a justification letter. Okay? It is a, and, and let me, let me define those two things just in case those are concepts that you're a little confused about because people use those words in different ways. Justification is the process by which we are made right with Christ. Okay, a little fun little thing you can remember in your head is justification means just as if I'd never sinned, right? It puts me in a state with God as if I had never sinned. That's not perfect theologically, but it, but it, it gives you the impression of it, okay? Jesus fully and solely, 
okay? Jesus and Jesus alone accomplishes our justification in his life, death, and resurrection, okay? It, it is not wrong to say you have no part in your justification, okay? Jesus has done it all. So if, I love the way Alistair Begg um, talks about this. You remember the the clip I shared months back about Alistair Begg saying, the man on the middle cross said I could come. Well, if you rewind that sermon and go back to just a section before he actually says this, he makes a, another great point that is just worth its weight in gold. He says, if someone were to come up to you and ask you that old evangelistic question, some of y'all have probably, you may not have been through those formal kind of classes like evangelism explosion or things like that, but in those trainings sometimes they'll teach you that a good way to start a conversation with somebody is to walk up to them and say, um, if you're trying to evangelize them and say, if you were to stand before God tonight and he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Right. That's sort of how you start to get the conversation rolling. But Alistair Beck says this. He says, if your answer begins in the first person, you've missed something. If your answer begins with, because I have done, because I have worked, because I have believed, then you're missing something. Our salvation, our justification begins in the third person. If you were asked the question, why should I let you into heaven? The answer is because he has done something. Because Christ has worked. Christ has sacrificed. Because he has accomplished. Okay? Now, again, we're not denying the fact that we have to receive him by faith. We're not denying that that is a, a function of our will and all those things, right? We're not, we're not, don't, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, okay? We're just saying that the work of salvation has been accomplished in Jesus Christ. And so, because of that idea, that side of the equation, that justification side of the equation, it seems like Paul is not focusing on that with the Philippians. Probably, and this is my, just a theory, right? This is just a suggestion. Probably because what we've talked about so often, because Paul knows this church, right? He loves this church. He has been connected to him. They are, they are his, I mean, this is a heart church for him, right? This is not Corinth. Okay, this is not like, what am I going to do with you guys, church? Okay, this is, I mean, you guys are, I, I, you were the first church, church I started in, in Asia. And man, I am, you have been a blessing to me. And I know that you are solid in you, the faith and solid in your understanding of this. Okay, again, that's not how all of Paul's letters go. When Paul writes the letter to the Romans, He's never met the Romans before. The church in Rome started without Paul's help. It was already there. But Paul is going to visit that church and try to assist that church and get that church to assist him. And so he writes the book of Romans in a very broad and comprehensive way. He starts at A and he goes to Z and he gives the whole picture. The first half of the book is basically about justification. The second half of the book is about sanctification in a very general sense. Okay, So he speaks in a different way to that church because he doesn't know them. Um, other churches like the church of, in Galatia, um, he has, he knows them very well and they are goofy. Okay. They have forgotten the meaning of justification. And so with the very, it's like the third sense, now sixth, sixth passage of Galatians one, he says this, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, right? 
That book, and you go back and read Galatians, sometimes it is presented as a miniature Romans in some way, but that's because it is 100% a justification book. Like Paul goes in hard at the beginning of the book going, this is what Jesus has done for you, okay? He has saved you by his life, death, and resurrection, okay? So, but again, that doesn't seem to be the case in Philippians. In Philippians, Paul seems to assume that they get it. They get justification. They understand that rightly. Okay. So then what? Well, what that means is what seems to be the case is the book then focuses more on sanctification, not justification. The distinction between those sanctification now is that process of conforming our current lives to the image of Jesus Christ, of becoming what we already are because of justification. God has done something in our lives through justification, and now our lives are forming into that through sanctification. It is our um, living out the new accomplished reality of being justified in Christ and being set apart to his purposes. And so, again, in no way would we say, well, justification is all about God and sanctification is all about us. No, Both are all about God, and yet we have a unique way that we participate in sanctification that we do not participate in justification, okay? We add nothing to justification, but we participate by the Spirit's help in our sanctification, okay? So there's very little talk of justification in Philippians. It is not primarily the focus. Instead, sanctification is the focus, And what is the model for that sanctification? What are we supposed to look like? Okay, If we're supposed to be formed in the image of Christ, what does that look like? Well, that verse we just read in chapter 2 is the model. Jesus' incarnation and crucifixion are the model that we are supposed to follow. That's who we are. He says, you want to be formed in the image of Christ, look like the incarnate Christ, and look like the crucified Christ. Jesus, what does that passage tell us? Jesus steps down. He empties himself. He humbles himself to the point of ultimate obedience. That is obedience to the point of death and not just death, but death on a cross. That's what Jesus does. And he can do this because he trusts God. And he knows that his obedience will result in his own exaltation. That's the model for our sanctification. So to say it more simply even, our model is to trust and to obey. That's what we're supposed to do as Christians. That's how we live out our faith. Not talking about justification, right? That's what Christ has done. But how are we going to live it out? We are going to trust and we are going to obey. And as we're going to see, we do that by following the examples that Jesus has set and those who are following him faithfully. So let's talk about obedience first. I think the theme of obedience can be summed up again. We're going to kind of go through and pick out verses here and there that just sort of give us the big picture. But it can be summed up in chapter 1, verse 27. Although much of the book is is exhortations to obedience. But this is what 127 says. I'm sure you're, you're looking at it right now. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's really what sanctification is. That's what obedience is. Let your life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel calls us to a new life, to live a radically new life, to live in a constant state, and we've talked about it before, of semper reformata, 
which means always reforming. We are always reforming our lives and realigning it with the word of God and the character of Christ. Or we do that our whole lives. In a sense, it's what repentance is, right? We keep on saying um, we're we're God, in any way that I've messed up or gotten unaligned, I want you to form me back into Christ. If if Jesus is on this path and I've started to veer off a little bit, I want you to get me back in line with Jesus so that I'm following him. That's the entire Christian life. Obedience of semper reformata, always reforming. Not an earned salvation, again, we're not, uh, Jesus has accomplished that. We're not talking about living out a life to earn something. But we live in response to what God has done for us. We live in a way that honors the gospel, reflects Jesus Christ's image that is in keeping with the word and the heart of God. That's what we do. And so if you'll again indulge me, I'm going to read a bunch of imperative passages that we find in there here. Okay. It's going to go, it's going to go for a little bit. Okay. Because guess what? Again, that's what this book is largely about. This is a sanctification book. And so Paul is exhorting us to say, Hey, you need to obey God in all these different ways. Okay. Church at Philippi, church at College Street, obey God. Stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, of having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. My beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of this crooked and twisted generation, and among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. My brothers whom I long for and I love my crown and my joy stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat you, agree in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, 
practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Okay. That's a lot of exhortation, right? Not a lot of justification in there. Now, again, everything he just said, we only can do because of justification, right? Because of what Christ has done in us already. So he's not calling us saying, guys, you're on your own. You better pick yourself up by your bootstraps and figure this thing out. Do all these. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, because of who you are in Christ, I now call you to obey Christ in all of these things, right? It's kind of, man, I don't know about you, but it's striking when you just break a book down like that. When you go back and you pull out all the imperatives, not the indicatives, not the things that he says are already the case, because those are oftentimes pointing towards Jesus and justification, not the indicatives, but the imperatives, the things that he is calling us to do. How do we obey so faithfully? How did Jesus obey so faithfully? Again, we're thinking of all these things in the context of that that's chapter 2. Of Jesus. What has Jesus done? Jesus has obeyed all these things. He has stepped down. He has placed others before himself. He has humbled himself. He's put other people's needs before them. He's not done these things with grumbling or resentment. He has reached out in love and service and sacrifice to the world. How could Jesus possibly do these things? How could he live that kind of life? And how do we live that kind of life? Well, it's the next emphasis of the book. And that is trust God and live this way. Again, pulling one verse out is sort of our model for that. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in the glory of Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Chapter 4, 19 and 20. So obedience and trust uh, are not the same thing. You probably already know that. Um, They don't always exist together even. In fact, the lack of trust is obviously what makes obedience so difficult, right? It's hard to obey somebody you do not trust. And you've probably recognized that. You've had a boss or you've had a parent or you've had a relationship where you were like, man, I want to do what you say, but gosh, it's going to be hard because I don't trust that you have my good at heart. I don't think you're wise. I don't think you're good. There's all kinds of reasons not to trust. If we are convinced that someone who has authority over us, though, is good, is wise, is kind, then we are able to trust in our obedience. Because the reality is, is we know there's a kind of obedience that comes not from trust, but comes from fear. Oftentimes, that's the reason why we obey. And oftentimes, the world makes a mistake between those two. It thinks that that's how Christianity works. Right. It, it, it says, man, Christianity's dumb. You know why? Because you just do these things because you've got this taskmaster judge in the sky who's going to spank you if you don't if, if you don't do what you're supposed to do. But the reality is, is that's not why a believer obeys. The Bible tells us that perfect love casts out fear. And so while there always remains a kind of reverential fear and awe of God, because our God is not a safe God. There is also a willing obedience because he is a good God. And over and over in the midst of trials and trouble, both for Paul and the church at Philippi, the things that they are enduring, the things that they are going through, Paul is assuring them in different ways at different places in the letter God is trustworthy. You can trust him. 
Somebody says, yeah, but Paul, what if God abandons the church at Philippi? Paul says, I'm sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Yeah, but Paul, what if, what if circumstances don't play out the way that we want? They're not ideal. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened has really served to advance the gospel. Yeah, but what if, what if we face opposition from outside, petty divisions on the inside? Paul says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Yeah, but Paul, what if this ends up getting you killed? What if these things cost you your life? Paul says, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul's not worried. He's not worried about obeying Jesus. He's not saying, man, I just don't know if I can, because what if I do these things and God doesn't show up? What if he lets me down? What if bad things happen because I didn't think about myself first and I instead thought about these things that God has told told me to do? Paul's not worried because he trusts God in all these things. And I say this all the time, and you already know it, but that doesn't mean everything will be easy. but it does mean that everything will be okay. Those are very different things. Not everything is going to be easy. Not everything is going to play out in in the, the way that you hoped it might, but it does mean that everything is going to be okay. Or as it has has been said by somebody else, uh, we don't know what the future holds, but we know the one who holds it. So what do we do? What do we do? We follow Jesus. That's what we do. Chapter 3, verse 17. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. You, you may have, you probably have realized this. Maybe you've never thought about it in these terms, but all of the Christian life is about following. You know, it's weird. Sometimes we say this, we go, I don't want my kids to be followers, right? You, you hear people say that all the time. I don't want people, I don't want our church to be followers. I want our kids to be followers. I don't want our teammates to be followers. I want them to lead the way. No, you don't. Right? What you want is them to be followers of the right leader. That's what you want. You don't want any, gosh, don't lead the way, please. Okay? Do not lead the way because you're an idiot. And I'm an idiot, okay? And we will be lost in the woods in a second if you lead the way. Now, this is what you need to do. You need to follow the right leader. And you know who the right leader is? Jesus is. Jesus is the right leader. Follow him, okay? Be a follower. We should get t-shirts. That's our new t-shirt. Be a follower, okay? And then we'll put, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us on the back. Uh, Philippians 3.17. Jesus is our ultimate example. And again, the whole point of the book, I think, go back to that chapter two, at the very beginning, when he's saying, have this mind in you that is also in Christ Jesus. He's talking about following. 
that glorious passage that we started with, you know what? Most Bible histor- uh, commentators think that that's actually a hymn. That's why it's written in weird uh, font in your Bible, because we think that that's actually an early hymn that, that Paul is quoting in, you know, total. A hymn about um, the glory of who Christ is, of his incarnation and his humility, his crucifixion, his stepping down and sacrificing himself. Jesus is the example, so follow him. Another way to say it is Jesus is always out in front of us, right? You never get past Jesus. Again, if you're past Jesus, you're going to get lost, and you are. You don't know the way well enough. So follow, set your eyes on Jesus and follow Jesus. When you fall off the path, then get back on the path and get your eyes back on Jesus and start following Jesus again. You're not doing this on your own. You're not a trailblazer. You are always and forever a follower. But the cool thing is, is that Christ is with you. He is ahead of you now and always and even until the end of the age, the Bible says. But here's the interesting thing, too. He says, but there are also those who are faithfully following Jesus that you can kind of keep your eyes on in terms of proximity. Right. There are some people who um, are right here close that maybe it can be helpful for you to keep your eyes on them as long as they are also following Jesus. And that's that's the people that he presents to us throughout the book of, of Philippians. He says, you know what? People like Timothy. Timothy's the kind of guy you could follow for. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. And so Jesus, Paul, through the Holy Spirit, is saying to us, you know what? Follow Jesus. But man, there's some other people who are following Jesus that you can kind of keep your eyes on, and that'll help you too. Guys like Timothy, guys like Epaphroditus, Paul says, a brother, a fellow worker, a fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. He says, man, you know what? Men who are willing to give their lives, to sacrifice their lives for the cause of Christ, those are the kind of guys that you can keep your eye on and feel pretty confident that as you follow them, you are following Jesus. And then Paul points to his own life. Paul says, I am one who worships by the Spirit of God and glories in Christ Jesus and puts no confidence in the flesh. He's given up everything in order that he may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul is saying, if you got a guy who has given up everything and his soul Ambition, goal, calling, heart motive of his life is to know Jesus Christ and his suffering and his resurrection. He says, you know what? He'd probably be a good guy to follow. That'd be a good guy to keep your eyes on. And Paul, in in, in no kind of arrogance or self-righteousness, is saying, that's what I had done. 
And so Paul's not afraid to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul's laid everything else aside and that one thing remains to know Christ. But here's the interesting thing. If you're looking for a perfect leader, if you're looking for a perfect example outside of Jesus Christ, you won't find it in Paul. And Paul admits that freely. The only one who's going to be perfect is Jesus. Paul confesses that he's not already attained perfection, but he says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made that perfection my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. He says, this is how mature people think is what he's saying. I'm not perfect, he says, but you can, you can trust that as you follow me, you're following Christ. And when I mess up, I'm going to admit that I messed up. And then I'm going to keep my eyes on Jesus and keep on trucking. I'm going to forget and not slow down like we talked about a few weeks ago. And you should do the same. That's what maturity in Christ looks like. Because of who Christ is, because of what Christ accomplished, okay? Never forgetting justification. And yet saying, this is what he has accomplished. Therefore, let's obey, let's trust, and let's follow. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, again, we thank you for this time. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, um, God, the way that your word speaks to us and calls us out of death into life. It calls us out of complacency into action. It calls us out of self-centeredness and self-righteousness into sacrificial love for others. God, because of who your son Jesus is, because of what he has done for us, we are new people, new people bought with a precious price. And that is the blood of Jesus Christ. God, our lives carry a new value because of what it cost Jesus Christ. God, we ask that we would live in a way that we walk worthy of the gospel. Jesus has walked in that way. He has shown us the supreme example of humility and service and sacrifice. And he calls us to the same thing. So, Father, help us to trust. God, as we trust you, as we know that you have good planned for your people, help us to obey you in everything, even the hard things, even the scary things. God, let us know that no matter what happens, God, you will work these things out for our good and your glory. God, it may take us a lifetime to see how that plays out. God, the reality is, is that oftentimes we know we may not even see the way all the things fit together until we stand in glory. But God, we know that you are faithful. We know that you are trustworthy. 
We count on you. We follow and we obey. Father, help us to do that rightly. God, we pray for our congregation. We continue to pray for for um, the direction that you have us going in. God, we pray um, not because we know the best way, but God, we are asking that you would help us to have a sense of of calm and trust and that you would show us the best way. And that as we keep our eyes on you, you will lead us where we need to be. God, we ask um, for your blessing on the churches of Blunt County. And we ask that you would continue to work in them as the gospel is preached, as the word is proclaimed, and that you would use the testimony of churches, churches like First Baptist Alcoa, churches like St. Brennan's Anglican, churches like Smoky Mountain Presbyterian. Um, God, brothers in Christ, sister churches, God, we ask that you would bless them all. And as they preach the gospel, that you would draw people to yourself. And we thank you, we praise you, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and sing the close of the song.
Amen. Well, I hope you've enjoyed our our track through Philippians. Um, I've said this to you a couple times now. Um, the reason why I chose Philippians is because I'd never preached it before. It's as simple as that. Uh, to be very honest, it wasn't any more prayerful than that. Um, I didn't have a bigger plan in mind. I think I went, you know what? Philippians is a great book. And I've never preached it. I think we're going to preach it. And man, all I can say is providentially God has laid out almost each week. I feel like, um, some kind of need, some kind of something in our church and God has just spoken right into it because that's what God does. Okay. He provides for his people. He providentially does these things even when we're not thinking about them and even when we're not planning about them. And so, um, that's something to be thankful for as we go into this Thanksgiving week. Um, next week, we're going to have kind of a standalone, um, sermon before we get into our Advent season. So here's a little trivia question for you. You ready? Okay. Every service, every single service, there are two passages of scripture that we quote every single week. You know what they are? So one of them is in Leviticus that we're, I'm about to do the Levitical blessing, right? But the other one is, is the liturgy of our table, which comes from first Corinthians chapter 11. Okay. Um, that's what I'm going to be preaching on next week. We're going to go through the Lord's Supper section of, of first Corinthians chapter 11, just kind of in the theme of Thanksgiving and tables and feasts. Um, we're going to talk about the Lord's Supper, just to remind us of the significance and what we're doing and what we're thinking about and celebrating as we as we uh, take the Lord's Supper. Um, and and we'll kind of do that. And then the week after that, we'll kind of start getting into our, our Advent series. So I um, hope you'll be here for that. Um, remember gift cards last week is next week. So if you've got time, go by someplace, um, grab a Kroger, grab a Walmart, grab a old Navy or, or something like that gift card and bring it. And we'll get those to Isaiah 117 house. Cool. Um, hope you have a great week. If you're traveling, be careful. Um, hope you have a great time, uh, with family, um, as we, as we share our thankfulness to God, um, for all that he has blessed us with. Hear this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week.